Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 85. I'm not going to lie. This has been probably the hardest episode to put together and one of the most precious. My guest this week is Kayla Steckline, who is the widow of Andrew Steckline, who died by suicide just over two years ago. You probably heard about it in the news, a pastor who had recently gone on sabbatical and then died shortly after returning. Kayla has written an incredibly brave story, and you will see just how honest and vulnerable she gets in this interview. And I am so, so thankful for the work that she's doing to destigmatize suicide, to bring help to people that are hurting, and to equip the family and friends and everybody of those who are hurting and, and don't know how to respond. When someone says, you know, I've been contemplating suicide, what do you do? What do you say? What, what shouldn't you say? Kayla gives us some really helpful answers to all of those things. So I am blessed and honored to share this with you and to commend her and her work to you today. I'm glad you're listening today. That's going to be good. I wonder, I've got, you know, various different kind of questions and love things that I have read in your book that I'd love for my listeners to hear you talk about first, uh, you know, for yourself. But I wondered if you would like to tell us a bit about Andrew. Sure. Before we get any further, who he was, who the the life and the passion that was in him. Yeah, Andrew. You know, I met him, I think I was 18 years old when I met him, 18 or 19 years old. And right away, I was just drawn to him. He stood out from the crowd when after he passed away, uh, our family, we described him as a stallion. And a stallion is big and stands out and is bold and is kind of intense. Um, But on the inside, a stallion is very fragile. Um, and so that was Andrew, you know, like I, I was drawn to him right away and he was so different than the other guys in college. Um, he was super driven. He was very successful at a very young age at, I think he would have been 20 years old. He um, changed up his college schedule to only go two nights a week so he could work full time as a junior high pastor at his parents' <laughs> church. <laughs> so that's the kind of guy that he was like, I don't need this school stuff. Like I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to go after it. He actually never finished his bachelor's degree. I think he had like <laughs> one class left and he was so proud that he like was in his dream job was a lead pastor and had never finished his bachelor's degree. So he like school was just in the way for him. Um, so super driven, uh, very particular. His hair was always combed really nice and, you know, kept little oil wipes in his pocket to dab off his face and always looked like really sharp um, and a really excellent communicator on and off the stage. Just a very excellent, gifted communicator and a one-on-one conversation. And then also from the stage, um, very gifted. And, and he, he was really kind, like honestly, just genuinely calm and kind. Our home was a calm, kind, peaceful atmosphere. And it changed a lot when he got sick. Um, but yeah, that was Andrew. I mean, he, 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 um, he was just a normal guy. He would describe himself as like a normal guy. He loved the Lakers. He would talk about the Lakers, any chance he got from stage. Um, He loved a mountain bike. He loved golf. He loved to make fun of people. Like he was just a normal guy that had an incredible calling on his life. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for how much of him you've, you have shared with us, even in in the book and, and through that. Uh, As I was preparing for today, I just pulled up as many pictures of him as I could find and just Mm -hmm. to look at your family and just to see, see the joy and see the life you shared. Uh, there was a point in your marriage where this fear began to sort of make itself known and Andrew would sort of start to have these, these episodes. How did that begin? Yeah, it was the fall of 2017 and um, it was after his dad had passed away. His dad had passed away in 2015 
And Andrew being the excellent driven communicator that he was, he never stopped um, when his dad passed away. So he took a two week break and then he came back and did a series on heaven. He cared more about the church and their grief than his own grief. And so he wanted to care for their grief and lead them through their grief and was so pumped to talk about heaven. And so he really never took time off. And so two years later, um, it really began to, I think, just catch up with him. You know, he'd been running fast, running hard for a long time. His dad was diagnosed in 2011. And so he really stepped up to the plate and he was co-leading the church, speaking regularly on Sundays, leading staff meetings. He was constantly pulled in at the last minute to speak on Sunday. His dad would be slotted to speak because his dad was speaking through the whole leukemia journey. And so his dad would be slotted to speak. And then like Saturday night, dad's being rushed to the hospital and Andrew's got to come up with a message for Sunday. And Mm -hmm. so it was a hard four-year journey and Andrew really stepped up to the plate in a lot of ways and helped carry the church through that time. And then he was handed the official baton of leadership in May of 2015, just a few months before his dad passed away. So he'd been running fast, running hard. We were adding to our family with three little boys at the time in 2017. They would have been, gosh, they would have been one, three, and four when he started having panic attacks. So very, not only busy career, but also very busy home life. And, you know, Andrew, um, being the type of guy, the leader that he was, he also, I think in a lot of ways felt like he needed to be the leader of his family and not just my family, but also his mom and his siblings and kind of take that, that leadership role in the family that his father filled. And so we had a stalker issue in our family. Um, you know, one of our family members' lives was threatened in a very real way. It was very scary. And so that, that to me, the timing of that really felt like that invited fear into our home. It invited fear into my husband's mind. Um, and then it just started spreading like wildfire. So he was seeing, you know, we were, he was seeing a homeopathic doctor at the time. And so she had given him some anti-anxiety medication and we were doing whatever we could to help alleviate those, but they were happening like three to four times a week, almost always when he would be trying to go to sleep um, at night, he'd be trying to fall asleep and he'd just be tossing and turning in the bed. And then it would, it would morph into a panic and his extremities would go numb and he would have a very deep pain in his chest and he would just be pacing, crying, rolling around in the bed, trying to take a bath, doing whatever he could do to make him go away. And for me, you know, it was so hard and so scary because there was nothing I could do to help. There's nothing I could do to touch this like raging fear that was happening inside of his body. And I could tell he was having a panic attack just by the look in his eyes. I'll never forget. He had a huge, massive one. They started happening during the day as he got closer to really hitting a wall and burning out. And there was a big one that he had in April of 2018. Um, It was right before he was supposed to speak for the first of eight Easter services. And a security guard found him on the bathroom floor in the middle of a panic attack and pulled him into his office and called me and was like, you need to come over here. We got to figure this out. He's supposed to be on stage in like 15 minutes. I don't know what we're going to do. And I walk into the office and literally just looked at his eyes and I could tell he was gone. You know, when when a panic attack was raging through his body, Andrew was wasn't there and his eyes would be glazed over. And it's like I couldn't reach him. I would be trying, 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 like locking, like grabbing his face, cupping his face with my hands and trying to talk to him. And it's like he wasn't there. And so somehow he was able to get on stage um, and preach those eight Easter services. And then the following week, he had another massive panic attack in the middle of the day. And I called his doctor and she's like, take him to the hospital. Like enough is enough. And that's kind of when the sabbatical started. Mm, Man, I think one of the the things that impacted a bunch of us on on, uh, this side so strongly about those events and and when, you know, for all of us, you know, we didn't know that journey, right? We just heard pastor dies by suicide after sabbatical. But for a bunch of us, it was so close to our own reality. I've got a good friend who pastors here in my city who was on sabbatical. Wow. After burning out in a church plant. And you know, his his wife would say that she didn't have a husband half the week because of the, the buildup of church and how all-consuming it was for him to present. And 
he even looks like Andrew. And I remember at the time, it was such a, a, a kind of a wake up call for him. When you shared that story in the book, you know, obviously I have, there's this compassion and it's remarkable that he was able to get up and preach those messages. But if somebody had had a heart attack or a stroke, no one would put them up on stage, right? Right. Is, is there something in the engine, the expectation, where we don't treat it with enough gravitas? Like, I, I, was, I was just struck. I was so grieved, even in that particular story. Like, this poor guy. No one was willing to say, you need to stop. No one was willing to pump the brakes. And, you know, I think if one of us would have thrown out a life preserver, I think he would have jumped in it and we would have been able to pull him to safety. Like, I really, truly believe that he was crying out for help. And I think we were so close to it and we had been operating that way for years. We had been Mm -hmm. operating that way as a family and as a church and dealing with his father's leukemia and then his father passed away. And like, it was just like intense like that for years to the point to where it almost felt normal. And um, Andrew could do it. Andrew, Andrew's got this. Andrew's, Andrew can totally do it. Andrew can show up. He's, he's going to handle it. And then he gets on stage and he does. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, glad that's over. Glad, glad that he did that. But I think the question is at what cost? At what cost? Week after week after week um, for Andrew specifically, you know, struggling with those panic attacks from October to April, October 2017 to April 2018 debilitating three to four times a week, constant um, during those months. I wish we would have been able to see all the lights on the dashboard going off sooner and realize, hey, it's time for him to pull over and take a break a lot sooner. Yeah, I think we were so close to it. And it's so hard when you're a family member um, because you are so close to it and it happens so slowly over time. Um, the illness creeps in so slowly every time that you are not fully able to see it until you are able to stop and zoom out and say, Whoa, I can't believe, I can't believe that we did that. Like I share in the book that I was backstage weeping. I was backstage crying and he's on stage speaking and no one in the congregation would have known. And I wonder how often that happens for pastors. You know, I wonder how often they feel like they have to get on stage and put on a brave face for the church and they're not able to be vulnerable. They're not able to say how they're really doing or how their morning really went or that email that just came in that was super hurtful or that staff person that just resigned that they, that they trusted. Like, There are so many things that happen behind the scenes. And I think oftentimes we think pastors are superhuman, that they're invincible, that they just can show up and do this and that they um, aren't touched by those kind of things. And the reality is they're not, they're human, you know, and they have real human emotions and they have real human capacity and they only have so much adrenaline and they can only go so hard for so long without burning out. So I think the, the um, warning signs of burnout were flashing months before it led to the hospital burnout. And I, I regret not, um, not noticing it sooner and not um, giving Andrew a voice. I wish I would have helped advocate for him and give him a voice and give him permission to rest. Mm. It's uh... Yeah, it's it's hard, even in yourself. Like, there are days where I'm sure I've got it all together. I anticipate having it all together. I do not anticipate being derailed. And I'll check in with my wife in the morning, and how are you doing today? I'm like, yeah, feeling good, feeling strong. Let's do this thing. And then 11 o'clock and I get an email and it triggers something and I'm hyperventilating and, you know, and my wife who's very plan driven and structured is kind of like, well, but you told me you were fine. Like if you weren't fine, why didn't you tell me? 
and 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 I don't know what to say. Right? Um, that's so real. I am. I am. I'm. I'm really quite. My breath is taken away by your honesty. Um, and I think you're absolutely on target in regarding how how widespread the burden is for pastors. I saw an article that some folks were sharing within the last week, specifically in the COVID context, and something like 40% of these pastors interviewed had all said, we are, we, we have, have had some suicidal ideation. Um, wow. It's, it's, huge. it's huge, like mind crushingly huge. Um, one of the really wise things I think you wrote in, in, in here earlier on was regarding isolation and the difference between isolation and solitude. I, if I, can I read your, your writing? Um, yeah, go for it. You wrote, solitude is fuel for the soul. It's sacred, intentional time to reflect on life away from a busy schedule of responsibilities. Solitude helps us connect with ourselves. Isolation, on the other hand, is rooted in disconnection. It doesn't connect us to anyone. And you wrote more about the damage, even what we understand biologically and medically about the damage of isolation. And what, what I kept seeing as your story unfolded was a, a culture with obviously you had the move in the house and responding to that stalker situation and, and the broader culture of a whole bunch of people doing the best they could. And yet somehow there was a kind of steady isolating thread in too much of your guy's life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say we both felt isolated. I think in the um, in our own home, we both felt isolated, isolated from each other and isolated from the world. And I think we were both screaming on the inside, like needing connection, um, but unsure how to make that happen. And I think for me, I just wanted to protect and preserve Andrew's energy and his rest and his mental health. And it was really hard as a pastor's wife who a lot of my friends attended the church. And so I didn't feel like I could be vulnerable and honest and real and raw and tell them what was really happening at home and how hard it really was and how bad Andrew was actually doing and how, how hard I was actually struggling to. And so instead of, um, being willing to do that, I just didn't. I just chose not to. I chose not to let people in. I chose not to invite people into that space. I think I tried um, a few times with a few close friends, but I think there was so much that all of us just didn't understand the degree to which that it was all happening in our home. Um, and, you know, mental illness and depression is so isolating. And I think for Andrew, um, he was already introverted, already had, he grew up in the church. And so he watched how people that his parents trusted turned around and stabbed him in the back. And that happens often in ministry. And so because of that, you know, he often had walls up and he only let a few people into his close circle and the way that his depression manifests itself, um, it was hard to be around him, you know, and, and anger and frustration and just he carried himself um, so differently from the Andrew that was healthy to the Andrew that was um, in just the pit of pain and depression. It was just two different people. And I think that is the learning curve of living with somebody with mental illness is differentiating who you're talking to. Am I speaking to my healthy Andrew that I marry that is like fully healthy or am I speaking to mental illness, depression, Andrew? And honestly, it was like a daily 
trying to navigate that because some days he'd wake up and he'd be fine and he'd be happy and he'd want to go to the beach or he'd want to take the kids for a walk or he'd want to do a house project and plant some stuff in the backyard. And then there were other days where he would wake up and he would walk into the kitchen and just be sobbing and have to go back in the bedroom and sleep. Um, or little tiny things would be big, massive things to him. And so it was really, really hard. Um, and I, I regret not reaching out more and not allowing more people into our pain. You know, I, I, there are so many people. I think that's the lie of isolation is that nobody wants to be around me. No, no one loves me. No one's my friend. No one, I can't trust anyone. No one wants to put up with this. When in reality, most of the time, there is a sea of people that are surrounding each and every one of us that would be more than willing to drop what they're doing and step in and just come over and sit right beside us. You know, that's what empathy is. It's sitting right beside someone and not saying a single thing like your presence is enough. And I think I wish I would have allowed others to be present in our journey um, instead of trying to carry all of it on my own instead of allowing my husband to carry all of it on his own. Have you been able to find more of that connection since then? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think after he died, I had the freedom of being able to share whatever I wanted to share. Cause I didn't have this, I didn't feel like I had to protect him hmm. anymore. And the interesting thing about Andrew is that he, um, he had a handful of close friends that he would share intimate details with, but from stage, he was very transparent and vulnerable. And so he would share, you know, some of these struggles and some of these things from the stage. And so that kind of happened when he returned to work in August and gave those two messages on mental illness. And I think because of his vulnerability in those two messages, after he passed, I felt like I had the green light to be vulnerable to um, and that if he were here, he would be sharing his story. If he had survived the suicide, he would be sharing his story and he would be trying to help other people. And so I had to let people in. I, after he passed away, like I had these three little kids and my life is in shambles and I had to let people in. And I'm so, so, so grateful that I had people that literally just laid next to me on the floor and wept with me. Yeah that I could call in the middle of the night when I was in the middle of a meltdown and they would just sit and listen on the other end of the phone that would um, show up at my house with dinner. And when I didn't feel like cooking, that would come over and scoop up the kids and take them to their house to go swimming when I just needed some time alone. Um, and so I've really, really, really been able to allow people to be present in my life and to truly carry the pain with me. Like the pain is so heavy of the deep loss and trauma um, that, that I've endured the last few years. It's so heavy. And I know I'm self-aware enough to know that I cannot carry it on my own. And so the only way that I'm still standing um, today is that I have allowed other people to carry it with me. It's like that picture of when you like break your leg, you know, and you have your friends one on either side and their arms, you have your arms around them and their arms around you and you're walking together. And that's truly been the picture of my grief journey. Like I have, I have been surrounded by love and support and people that are truly in the depths of the pain with me, even though they don't understand they're willing to crawl into that dark space and sit right beside me. And not to say that it hasn't had its moments where it's extremely lonely and isolating because it's definitely had those moments too. And that's just part of being a widow and a single mom. Like it's an isolating, lonely journey too. And so I need people by my side even more. Wow. For sure. For sure. I'm, I'm so glad that you have, been able to have people come in and people after after Jared Wilson died I was so troubled um I I pastor I'm very thankful to not be in a lead pastor role but I are the couple who who are in the lead pastor role good friends of ours and I I see how 
hard, as you said, you know, the emails, the abuse, the, the betrayal. And so I, I started reaching out to a whole bunch of pastors I know in the region and just to say, do you need to get coffee? I don't go to your church. I'm not even a competing pastor, quote unquote. I just have a podcast. So do you, do you, and well, we won't even run the podcast. Let's just sit and have coffee. And, and the number of them again, who are like, yeah, I don't really have safe people. It's, it, I, I, I'm, I'm baffled. I mean, uh, on the other hand, I do understand because even, even when you go out and talk to like people our age elsewhere, they're like, yeah, we struggle to make friends as adults. So I'm like, it's actually like an even a deeper problem. I feel like is that we are so desperately in need of relationship and there's significant forces culturally, religiously, uh, the pace of living in big cities, you know, all these things, our phones that somehow it's like actually just trying to make flesh and blood friends, let alone in the midst of a bloody global pandemic. It's, it's not an easy thing. Like it's hard. We're in an isolating time as a world. There it is. And it's the mental health ramifications of this time are going to be huge, are probably already huge. Like you said, the 40% of pastors struggling with suicidal thoughts. Like, goodness, I can feel the weight in my own mental health in this season too. It's just, it's hard. It's lonely. It's isolating. It's heavy. It's a lot. And I think we're so connected via social media and text messages and all of that stuff. Like we are such connected people and Zoom calls. I mean, amazing. My kids are all on Zoom calls this morning with their class and their teachers. But all of that is so surface and so shallow. And you just see little bits, you know, the little highlight reel of people's lives. And what we really need are people that can come sit at our house and have a glass of wine or have a cup of coffee and like have real life conversation where I can be like, today sucked. (laughs) Today was hard. Today I wanted to throw my kids Google Chromebook out the window because I couldn't figure out what the teacher was asking us to do. You know, like those people that you can just be real and raw and honest with. And I think you're right. You know, I think a lot of us as adults just lack that deep connection. And even in marriages, it can be hard. Yeah, it can be really hard, especially right now during the pandemic. We'll take a quick break to thank my Patreon supporters and to let you know that my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You, comes out very, very soon. September 22nd, in fact, you can pre-order it right now. Uh, This show is made possible by my Patreon supporters. If you would like to chip into this show, if you found valuable the conversations that I have on this show, I would uh, sure love your support to help keep this on the air. It's a significant effort uh, making this happen every week. So you can go to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. You can give for as little as $3 a month, or you can give more if the impact in your life is worth more than $3. And if you want to learn more about my devotional, which is a trauma-informed, contemplative, emotional, spiritual, meditative journey into loving yourself well, then go to jonathanpuddle.com slash you are enough with hyphens. Or just go to jonathanpuddle.com and you'll see it linked there. Thank you so much. So glad to share this with you. And for those of you for whom this suicide discussion is really relevant, uh, I don't want to detract from Kayla's book in any way, but the tools that I've pulled together in my devotional, I believe, will uh, be a source of healing and help to you on your own journey as well. So uh, go check that out. And let's get back to the show. Can I ask, have you developed some practices or, or uh, what's getting you through each day, Kayla, on a Monday today? I have to have space. So I'm introverted. And if I don't create space throughout my day to like just have quiet and to read and to pray and just to sit and have that solitude time for me is so vital. And if I do not have it, um, I will burn out that day. And so today I woke up at 5 a.m. and I snuck out to my little office in my front room and had my morning greens and vitamins and pre-workout and sat and read a little bit of a Nowen book and 
a devotional and journaled and then exercised for half hour and came back in. And just as I came back in, my kids started waking up. And so, but that time, like I have to create margin in my day to fill up my tank and to fill up my reservoir so I can keep pouring out because it's just me. Mm. I don't have a spouse here to be like, Hey, I need a break. Can you like hang with the kids? And I'm just going to like go for a walk or I'm going to go grab a coffee or I'm going to go get groceries by myself. Like I don't have that option. I have friends and I have people that I can call, but the day in day out responsibility on my plate, especially now with the virtual learning aspects that we're in, that my two boys are in and working from home. Um, I have to have margin. I have to have space so I can find my center and so that I can pour out from a cup that's full and a cup that's full of love, a cup that's full of energy, a cup that's full of empathy and compassion for these little men that (laughs) are running wild in my home (laughs) and for the work I have before me and my personality. um, I cannot operate inauthentically. I can only be authentic. And so I really genuinely have to have that time um, so that I can do things like this podcast today, you know, where I can be genuine and be authentic and pour out from a healthy place. Yes. Yes. Bravo. I, uh, you, <laughs> I'm the eldest of three boys. And so there were lots it. of, <laughs> I get it. There, there were lots of little moments in the, in the book where I was just like, oh, my poor mother. I need to send her a gift basket. <laughs> you're doing That's such, real. yeah. <laughs> Ian, you're doing such important work. I hope that you have people who are reminding you of that. Thank you. Creating margin in your life. Amen. Wow, that's so real. Uh, I, I wondered if you could uh, run us through some of the ways that spouses can help or that friends, whomever are around, uh, people, loved ones, where, you know, either there's an there's an explicit awareness of, of suicidal mm-hmm. thought, or you're just starting to see the, the warning signs. So some, some of those ways that you can help those close to you. Yeah, if a loved one or a friend or a family member, if you know they are struggling with depression, if you know they are struggling with suicidal ideation or anxiety, Like that should be a light going off for you that it's time to lean in. It's not time to check out. It's not time to back away. It's not time to give them their space. Like it is time to lean in. And I think oftentimes because um, we don't understand it, we tend to back off. We're like, I don't know what to do. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so I'm not going to say anything. And you know, that's more of what we experienced in our, in our journey. Um, but I think as a friend or as a spouse or as a family member, like leaning in and asking questions and um, just being present and picking up the phone and making the phone call. And if they don't answer the phone, leave an encouraging voicemail, show up at their door, knock on the door. If they don't answer the door, leave a sticky note on the door, leave a coffee on the doorstep. Like, send them a text, even if they don't respond to your text. I know my husband, a lot of the time did not respond to text messages because he was just so in a different world, struggling with this dark depression and just checked out and exhausted. And that was exhausting to him to respond to a text message. And so sending a text message, even if they don't respond, sending another text message, sending that verse you want to send, sending that prayer you want to send, like sending that encouragement that you want to send, It's not going to come off um, the wrong way. It's not going to come off as silly. Like it really is going to mean so much to the person that's sitting in that place of pain to know that they're thought of and to know that they matter and to know that there are people around them that love them and that want to be there for him, for them. Um, I think it really goes a long way. So showing up, uh, being consistent, um, leaning in. And if someone tells you that they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, like that is the time to really lean in and ask questions. Questions like, do you have a suicide plan? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? How often do you think about it? How would you do it? Um, just asking as many questions as you can and getting them to talk and express their feelings. Like it's a time to respond with love and empathy and support and compassion. And it's not a time for a reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, when my husband admitted that he was struggling with suicidal thoughts, I reacted out of my own emotion, out of my own exhaustion, um, 
from that season and, and my own emotion of like, how could you, you would never do that to us. That is the most selfish thing. Like I said, all the things you're not supposed to say. Um, but I think oftentimes that is how we react. And it's, we, we think that that person's being dramatic. Um, we think that it would never happen to them and then it happens. And so I, I wish, you know, to the person that maybe has somebody in their life that's struggling with suicidal ideation and that has told them, I wish I would have asked Andrew about it every single day. If I knew he was having a bad day or if I could tell he was off, I wish I would have just flat out said the word suicide and said, hey, are you, are you thinking about suicide today? I never did. The one time he brought it up, I brushed it off the table. I thought he was being dramatic. I called him selfish and I never brought it up again. And I wish I would have brought it up every single day. I wish I wouldn't. I think the word made me feel so uncomfortable. I think the word depression and the word anxiety and the word suicide oftentimes make us feel uncomfortable for most people. And, you know, now it's part of my normal vocabulary and I talk about it all the time. Um, but I felt so uncomfortable. And so I wish I would have asked him about it every day. I wish I would have picked up the phone and called the suicide hotline number and just asked for advice. I mean, they're there for advice too. You don't have to call in the middle of an argument and you're like scared for your loved one's life. Like you can call then, but you can also call after a conversation like and just ask questions. And so I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have told the psychiatrist and the therapist you know, I didn't let anybody in. I didn't take it seriously. My biggest regret is not taking the one admission seriously and not responding with love and empathy. And I think sometimes um, when we don't respond that way the first time, that initial time that they're being super brave and vulnerable and willing to share these deep, dark thoughts, when we don't respond with love and compassion that first time, the chances of them bringing it up again are slim to none. And so Andrew never brought it up again. It was this lonely, isolating battle that he was really fighting alone. Wow. My, my depression and anxiety have never gotten to the point of significant ideation. There are times where I'm like, that's a bottle of bleach. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, next, I have to do laundry. But it's never gone deeper than that for me personally. But everything that you said that we do wrong is exactly what I would imagine. I, you know, it's like, yeah, how dare you? Um, and I totally understand, even in my own marriage, you know, when my wife has said, you know, when you're down, it's really hard to not pull away. Especially if you're someone who, you know, for, if self-preservation is a big part of your thing, you know, if you're into a neogram and you're, you've got that subtype or you're a strong eight and you're looking to keep your boundary, like somebody doesn't want to get pulled in to your thing, even if they care about you, even if they love you. So that's good. That's really good. You have a number of times here spoken about really honestly about things you regret, but I'm glad you don't strike me as someone who is crushed or weighed down for, for those who might be listening and are more in, like in your position, how have you let, how have you ensured like guilt doesn't define you? That's a huge part of losing someone to suicide is that you, your mind races and comes up with a million different things you could have done differently in a million different ways you could have saved him. Like anyone that loved that person, you know, my husband's, one of my husband's best friends in Australia was like, I could have done more. I could have done this. I could have done that. Like, and he's so far away. Like anybody that loves that person feels like there's more they could have done or conversations they should have had. Like there's just a sea of regrets. And, you know, that first few months, that's all my mind did. My mind every single day throughout the day when I would try to sleep at night would just replay the events and try to save him every single day, all the time. And that all that is, is super exhausting and unhealthy and toxic and not good for my healing, not good for anybody's healing. And so I think what's really helped me sitting in therapy and working through the trauma and working through those regrets out loud and, and through writing, what's really helped me is to say that the suicide wasn't anybody's fault. It wasn't Andrew's fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. It's a tragedy 
just like a random motorcycle accident or any random other tragedy, like it is a tragedy and no one is to blame. I think putting suicide in the category of tragedy instead of putting it in the category of choice Mm. has helped me a lot in my healing of, you know what, I, the way that I responded and the way that I reacted, um, of course I could have done better, um, but I'm human and I'm not superhuman and I cannot live and function in a sea of regrets. Like I will just drown in a sea of regrets. And so instead it's, you know, for me, um, I can still talk about those regrets, but it's not, I don't, it's not something that I wrestle with every single day. You know, there's moments where I'm like, man, I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have done that. But at the end of the day, it's constantly circling back to, there was nothing I could have done. And, and this shouldn't have happened. Andrew wouldn't have chosen it. I wouldn't have chosen it. No one would have chosen it, but it's a tragedy and no one is to blame. Each of you were doing the best you could with with what you had, with what you knew, right? I'm so glad to hear that. Could you maybe unpack just a little bit more not being a choice, not being a decision, and the selfishness piece? Because I, w- I really appreciated the way that you dealt with that in the book. Yeah, you know, what I learned in having these kind of conversations and sharing our story from the stage and the research that I did for the book um, was that the word committed and killed themselves is the wrong word to attach to the word suicide. And and um, so I've changed my language. So I say died by suicide is how I like to talk about the way that he died. And I really do not see his death as a decision or as a choice. And you know, the suicidal mind um, is on fire. I talk about in the book, there's a suicidologist that um, coined the term psychic. And it's like the brain is literally like on fire and not able to operate rationally. And so this sheet is pulled up and they cannot access the rational part of their brain. And what really helped me too is the psychiatrist told us that 90% of suicides are impulsive. Like it really is this in the moment. Um, Ann Voskamp has described it as being in a burning building. And the only way to escape the flames is to jump through the window. And so it's this overwhelming pain. And I think through my grief, I have struggled with my own suicidal thoughts at, because the pain is so overwhelming. There are some days where I feel like the pain is never going to go away. It's never going to get better. I don't want to live with it anymore. I can't get rid of it. It's like all over me. It's like this big, heavy blanket that's all over me and I can't escape it. And there are some days where death seems like the better option than to keep living through the pain. And I think, um, you know, understanding that it, that it isn't a decision, that it isn't this selfish thing, that it's something that happened to them as the result of an underlying physical condition. Like mental illness is a real physical illness. There is a real chemical imbalance happening in the brain. And the death is the result of that underlying physical illness. Like the word committed is the wrong word to attach to suicide because it's also the word we attach to phrases like committed a sin or committed murder or committed a crime. Like it is not that person's fault. I do not blame Andrew. It's not anybody's fault. It's a tragedy. No one's to blame. It's not selfish. Um, it, it is so far beyond our understanding. Honestly, it's like this mysterious elusive thing that even the most brilliant psychiatrists do not understand. I'll also never forget Andrew's psychiatrist telling us we know a drop in the ocean of the brain. The brain is such a mystery um, and suicide is an absolute tragedy. And unless you've lived it and survived or have really struggled with suicidal ideation, I think it's really hard to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's really good. The last spent the last year and a half digging into trauma, understanding from my own journey. And as I came to understand, you know, how our amygdala works to to keep us alive and and how, you know, the kind of left cognitive portion of our brain will be shut down uh, because it's too slow and it doesn't give us information in order to, you know, to run away from a bear. And and so 
yeah, like it's really true what you say, like at a neurological level that, that you weren't talking to the fullness of Andrew in those times. And, and, and so it's like the fullness of Andrew isn't present to make those decisions. And I mean, we know that for ourselves when we fly off the handle and we get triggered by our kids spitting toothpaste in our face, and then we start screaming and yelling and we go, why did I do that? Like, like I know better than that. And, and, and yet it seems we are so hard on ourselves and hard on other people. I, th- I wonder if that's why some of the reason why it's tempting to accuse suicides of selfishness, where it's kind of like, it's actually because I, I know how hard it is. And I don't know. I, I, I look at, I look at my own journey. I look at journeys like what you're like yours and people who I dearly love who just don't get it. And I talk about suicide or talk about depression. Oh, what are you sad about? I'm like, I feel like the church is making such progress, but there's still so much more to be done. But I'm so thankful for, for your vulnerability and for your, your willingness to help us out of your own, out of your own deficit. It's a gift. Thank you. Uh, I would love for you to pray for us if if you would, but I wonder if, is there anything else that you'd love to just leave with us or any thoughts that you feel need to be reiterated? If you're listening to this show and you are struggling with suicidal thoughts and you've brushed it off and brushed it off and brushed it off and tried to minimize it and haven't told anybody like today's the day to tell somebody pick up the phone, call a family member, call a close friend, send that text, like have a brave moment. Um, Do it for yourself. Do it for your loved ones. Like your life is worth living. Your life is worth fighting for and living with that deep pain is possible. Mm. Friends, Kayla's book is called Fear Gone Wild, a story of mental illness, suicide, and hope through loss. And I read it in a day and a half and I commend it to all of you. Uh, even if you're not uh, feel like any of this applies to you, uh, I, I commend it to you anyway. My wife and I lived in Finland for six years. Our kids were all born there and did life there for a while. And suicide there is is so rampant mm-hmm. that like, I forget the statistic, but it, but it was like, it was like six degrees of separation. It was like, Oh yeah, uh, neighbor over there, wife died by suicide. Um, neighbor's younger sister's boyfriend, you know, and you just bump into it. Cousin, young cousin uh, was dropped off by her mom at her father's apartment, went upstairs and found him deceased. Wow. Um and so it's so much more around us, I think, than a lot of people have realized. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love if you, if you if you pray for for all of us, Kayla. Yeah. God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your the safe place that you provide for all of us. God, I thank you for conversations like this. Help us to be people of greater love, of greater empathy, of greater compassion. Give us eyes to see each other the way that you see us. God, help us to lean in when it's time to lean in. Help us to listen when it's time to listen. Give us the right questions to ask our friends that are hurting. God, I thank you that we can come to you with every single thing, the ugly things, the beautiful things, the painful things, the traumatic things, the joyful things. God, thank you for doing it with us and equipping us and strengthening us. Thank you for teaching us how to live with pain. God, I pray for my friends that are listening to this today, Lord, that are sitting in that place of pain and that are thinking about ending their pain forever through suicide. 
God, I pray that they would just feel the comfort of your love right now, God, that they would know that you are sitting right beside them and that you're not far away, but that you're near and you're close and you care and that there are a sea of people surrounding them that are tossing out the life preserver that care. God, I pray that you would continue to equip us to keep having conversations like this, to keep breaking the stigma surrounding mental health and suicide, and that you would continue to reach people in their deep pain, God, that we would be vessels of your love and your kindness and your empathy and your compassion. We love you. We thank you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kayla. Friends, go and order Kayla's book. It is linked in the show notes. You'll find it where all good books are sold. I chewed it up in about a day and a half, and uh, it's an easy, important read. She has done a really good job. And uh, as you can hear in this, there's a rawness and a realness to her message that uh, brings the tragedy home and I, I believe is going to save lives. Uh, I know it actually it already has saved lives. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. Go follow Kayla on Instagram. Get the book. Go grab my book, You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. And we will see you back here 